Hello everybody and welcome to Talking Flutes Extra with me, the old flute geezer and joining us from the other side of the pond via Zoom, 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 is the wonderful, we haven't spoken for a while, have we? Elsa Nielsen. Hello, Elsa. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be back. Are you really? Are you really? Yes, I am. It's been a long time since you've been on last. And there's been lots of changes. You're really, really busy. And you've got lots of irons in the fire that we will talk about in the coming, however long this podcast lasts. (laughs) (laughs) In the coming flow of the line of time that just keeps going. Oh, yeah, I like time distortion. Everything's time distortion for me. You start talking. Let's talk about that. Yeah, you start talking (laughs) and then 10 minutes has gone. But yet you're playing a really hard piece of music and you're hoping 10 minutes have gone, but only 30 seconds have gone. There is this weird Mm -hmm. sort of counterbalance in life, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, we have no direction of travel with this. And this is a great thing that when I speak with Elsa, you put a direction of where you want to go and Elsa will deviate because she has so many thoughts and is so passionate about so many things. So unusually for me, we are going to, I'm going to let Elsa direct this. We're going to go into areas that I may find uncomfortable. I probably won't, but I might. And Elsa would gently <laughs> guide into oh, the realms cool. of flute, flute playing, technique, timing, sound, activism, anything that Elsa wants to come out with. Um, But before we do so, I'm going to be very remiss of me if I don't have a huge, great shout out to our podcast sponsors, TJ Flutes, who have been with us since we began this, goodness, seven years ago, nearly seven years ago. You can show them some flute love. Yeah, I know. Gosh, they must be mad, mustn't they? You can show them some flute love by visiting them at TJ Flutes on Instagram, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook, and at tjflutes.com on the web. Well, that's the that's the boring bit out of the way. Elsa, how wonderful to speak to you today. Thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for doing this. This is always such a blast. <laughs> well, that's the great <laughs> thing, isn't it? It's it's all about, yeah. see, it's about because we, we spoke very, very, very briefly. Normally when I speak to guests, I normally have a 10 or 15 minute sort of chat beforehand and then we decide where we want to go. With you, we just said, let's just switch it on and see where it goes. I mean, I'm an improviser, so that makes sense. You are. And like, to that extent, I want to draw the audience to your wonderful website, elsanilsonmusic.com. And the way that you've changed your bio to be so relevant is, you know, you look at some bios and they're just full of, I've, in 1994, I studied with Paul Edmund Davis in London. And in 1996, I studied in New York with XYZ. <laughs> and, you know, it gets very dry and very stuffy. But yeah. El- Elsa hasn't. Elsa just puts Elsa, the performer. And I'm just going to read because this perfectly encapsulates you, my lady. So just before you read that, I want to mention that my friend Betty wrote the bio for me because I was like, you've been to so many of my shows. She knows exactly like what it's like to watch me play. I was like, I think it would be better if Betty wrote it than if I wrote it. And I think it is. It is. And anyone knows you yeah. know that it is. You're, you're like this performing psychologist in that you check out the room when you start playing. Of course. 
And you don't get Elsa, the real Elsa, until you've sort of sorted out in your mind where you can take this because you get the vibe and you've always got the vibe. Yeah. Um, it does help that you're Swedish and you're crackers most of the time anyway. So that does. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to read this because I think it perfectly encapsulates you. Elsa Nilsson, the performer. If you've never been caught in a sudden downpour amidst a tornado with the earth splitting open beneath your feet, you've never heard Elsa live. It starts with the chatters dying off as the room turns quiet. Feels like another night in another room. The band is introduced and you can sense the nervous energy of the room as the music creeps up. The first steps of an evening stroll down a familiar path with strange new faces. But each time, she's just feeling out the room, scoping out its depths and hooks. Oh no, nooks, not hooks, nooks. And nooks so she can feel it with her sound. And you'll know when that moment happens because whatever thoughts were lingering a second earlier, it's no longer there. Instead, you'll wonder if you never really heard the flute before. And I think that is, that's you, but you are so attentive to that moment, to your fellow musicians and the audience at the same time, that this, emol- yeah. this, this amalgam of sort of energy sort of then enables you, it just guides you really. Yeah, part of the way I exist in music is I read a lot, partially for practical reasons because I live in New York and I spend a lot of time on the subway. But there's these books that I've been reading on and off for a long, long time. One of them is Free Play by Stephen, and his last name is long and beautiful and starts with an N. And I can't remember it right now. Stephen that begins um, with an N, okay. Yes, I will I can send you stuff later. Um, it's called Free Play, and it's about improvising. I and mean, it's a really, really beautiful book. And I keep coming back to that because it talks about the process of improvising and the process of becoming free in the music you're playing. And it's not only about improvisation, it's about just like freedom in sound. And then there's another book that, again, like every couple of years I pick it up, it's called The Mysticism of Sound and Music. Mm. And it's Sufi philosophy. Yep. And both of these books, like they keep coming back to this idea that music is medicine, which I love. I know that's true for me. But it's also like, I'm not performing for the sake of being in front of an audience and feeding my ego. That to me is kind of pointless. Like it just, it's not about me. If it's about me, I could do something else where something else that would probably be easier. (laughs) Because this is not an easy thing to do. Um, Why the... I'm performing because of the role that music holds in society and that music has held in human societies since we started making music as a species. And that is a shamanistic place. That is the idea that music is like the glue that creates community. And to me, it's not just music. Like I'll go deeper. It's rhythm. Yeah. And that's where you get the tension and release. That's where you get all those little like, where you feel like you're standing at the edge of the cliff and you have to make a decision if you jump or you don't. And you know, as a band, you know, as an ensemble, like what that feeling is of like, you build that tension and then you release it. And that's what feels like breathing in the music. So that's my approach whenever I go into a new room and it doesn't matter if there's five people or 150 people, like we all bring the energy we bring. 
And as a musician, part of my job is to just guide the energy, which sounds like total hippie nonsense, right? Like the way that you talk about it, but it's, it's not like energy is mood. Energy is, we talk about losing energy when we get hungry, like our blood sugar is low and low energy. Like it's not just a hippy dippy thing. It's a very literal thing that we all experience all the time in our lives. And as musicians, we get to play with that. And particularly as improvisers, we get to play with that. And scales, technique, all of the, uh, this other stuff, the only reason to work on it is to facilitate being able to go deeper when you actually have the privilege of playing, of creating music. Energy and improvisation, that's an interesting one for a lot of people. Yeah. Can you remember the first time that you actually played and the gig was over before you knew it because you were free of all these self-limiting factors? That inner voice wasn't talking to you. Um, I mean, it started before I started playing gigs. Really? Oh, yeah. I remember the first time I realized that this is how it felt to make music. And I think I was six. <laughs> and, like, my, my dad would drop me off. Like, I was really annoying when I was six. I hated fishing, and that's, like, my dad's favorite thing. I hated it. I would get seasick. I didn't like watching fish get killed because I was, like, squeamish about it. So instead of doing something that I wanted to do, um, he would put me on a life vest and drop me off on an island and come get me when he was done fishing. And I would be there for like hours and hours alone. I loved it. It was great because I would just sing. I would just run around on this island by myself and make up songs. And the time would fly by. And then he would come get me and he'd be like, what were you doing? I'm like, I wrote seven songs. And he's like, cool, let's go home and write them down. And we did. Like he would help me figure them out. But that's like when I realized the way that like my sense of time, my sense of self, my sense of humanity was, it could dissolve into music, which meant that it could become this thing that I could communicate to others without having to have the words for it. Cause at the time, like growing up, I was bilingual, which was very confusing because I never, I couldn't trust that the words coming out of my mouth were the right language. So I would just not talk to strangers, like, ever. I would, wouldn't talk. But with music, I could always communicate exactly what I was feeling, exactly who I was. And it was always, like, it started with improvisation. Did it take you backwards when you were told or you understood you had to learn the rules? Because later in life, you, you learn the rules, you know you can then break them and how to break them and how to stretch yeah. them. How many phases back did it? Or did you just embrace that as just a process? I always thought of something different. That doesn't surprise me, Elsa. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But like, you know, a teacher coming to me and being like, this is how you have to do it. I was like, that's what you think. Okay. I never really succumbed to the idea that there was one true way of making music because like, you, it, you just got to look around. That's not true. Pop is just as relevant as classical music in terms of, like, it's music. It makes you feel something. It's music. Often improv is the thing that makes the hair stand up on the back of your necks. We, you're talking about energy. We all know people that impart negative energy, that suck the life out of us just by being in the same room. It's just their personalities. But energy we all, vampires. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> dementors and you know there's there's plenty of dementors in the, in the flute world but also we all know we've been to a gig and something feels good mm -hmm. something feels good you feel good inside and 
that is the energy that we're we're talking about. And yeah. when I have spoken to, I've spoken to some really, you know, some big over the years, some really big name artists that play stadiums around the world. And it's the improvisation that causes that energy because whilst yeah. they're whilst they've obviously the drummer's got click tracks in, so he knows where he's going. And mm-hmm. the there's often quite a bit of music that's already pre-programmed into the system. There's a hell of a lot of improv. And it's the improv when they come off that it stops them from sleeping because they have this buzz and this relationship yeah. with the audience. Yeah. And it goes to what you were saying is that it doesn't matter if it's four or 150 or 500, whatever many it is. Yeah. Even one, because the energy that can be sparked between two, it just needs a plus and a minus, doesn't it? Just to create that spark. Yeah. There's a quote that I'm going to paraphrase because it's been paraphrased to me. Make sure it's yourself you give. Oh, that's hard, isn't it? Yeah. That is hard. It's hard. And I think like that is the work of that. Like that's the work that we have to do as people, not just as artists, but as people, like make sure it's yourself you give. But we hide, you know, there's a, right. Being yourself is a vulnerability. Yes. It's terrifying all of the time. Be yourself. Only give yourself. Gosh. Make sure it's yourself you give. I like, um, to, I like to be I'm going to come back to that because yeah. I want to I talk about pulses first and then I'm going to come back to this. Um, yeah, let's talk pulses, shall we? Because we're, you're talking about, we're talking about communication and the yeah. improvisation yep. as communication, which is what that piece is all about. Specifically exploring the way that spoken language, and I'm, I'm like, went very nerdy, the way that spoken language in the Black American gospel church, like the gospel tradition in the church the way that that sort of speaking has influenced jazz phrasing. Mm-hmm. And I say that now, that's not how the project started. The project started when Rodrigo Recabaran, who's on drums on the project, sent me a video on YouTube of Dr. Maya Angelou reading on the Pulse of Morning. Oh, yes, yes, which yes. Which is yes. like a five and a half minute poem. <laughs> and um, this was in like summer of 2020. He'd been transcribing speeches, just the rhythms and playing along with them, posting them and then like moving on. And he sends me this thing and I'm like, oh my God, this is incredible. So I transcribe it like you would a jazz transcription because, you know, got nothing else going on. What were you transcribing? The beat? the Everything. The, the melody, the Everything. rhythm? Everything. Everything. Because the inflection, she- the vibrato. The way she speaks is in the same vocal, like orating tradition yeah. as Martin Luther King, as... Like, oh, hey, John Coltrane. There's a, there's a song called Alabama by John Coltrane where it's theorized, like Coltrane never said so specifically himself, but it's pretty clear if you look at historical context that it is based on the MLK eulogy of a church shooting, of young women being killed in a church shooting. And then there was this eulogy that was both like the grief and the pain of experiencing that moment, but also the hope of like, let's make something better. And there's this way of speaking that then comes out in Coltrane's horn, the way that he plays and the way that he phrases. So I have my students in the socially engaged artistry class. I have them listen to the MLK speech and then the Alabama being like, you hear it? It's the same because you can't notate it. There's so much about improvisation that is impossible to write down. Yeah. And I think that this is relevant, like if we talk about Bach, if we talk about Handel, if we talk about like the composers that we all love, 
There's so much about music that we can't write down. Notation is a skeleton. It's so important. It's the fastest way to communicate music. If everyone understands that system, now it's not the only system and that's also relevant to express, but you can't get stuck in the notation. You have to think about what it's trying to say. And I went just a little far in the other direction of like, okay, well, let's go to something where all I know is what she's saying. And it's clearly intentional. Like it's about to get really nerdy. She starts on an E natural. Huh? It's a five minute poem. She starts on an E natural. <laughs> I promise it's an E natural. The first like 30, the first section, she doesn't go above a B natural. And she's like hovering in there. Right. It's pretty tonal. It's pretty like A-ish, E-ish. It's not exactly tonal, but it's, it's kind of like circling around a couple of different tonal centers. E and A being the primary in the first section. And then the second section, she starts on a D natural. Oh. And then settles down to a B natural. And the whole section is kind of centered around a B natural. Every time she starts a phrase, she goes up. At the end of phrases, she does these diphthongs, which like, if you've listened to a lot of Portuguese, mm. you know, a diphthong is like a sound, ow. Yeah. Like it's, it goes from one to another vowel and it usually changes pitch. So she's doing these diphthongs that go, if it's in the middle of the phrase or at the beginning of a phrase, it goes up by a third. If it's at the end of a phrase, depending on where it is in the structure of the poem, it falls by a fifth, an octave, or a tritone. Oh, gosh. That's a and massive. Sometimes, yeah. And sometimes with a, if it's like a very specific word, there's like three points in the whole poem where it falls by a minor sixth. And she's consistent. And this is the kind of thing where like I was analyzing it. I was looking at it. I was like, this can't be true. And I spent, I can't even tell you how much time being like, no, this is, this is true. Like, this is actually what she's doing. So then towards then, and she like, she goes to the D natural. She drops back down to B, that whole section's in a B. Then she kind of does a tonal shift into the next section where she's talking about, um, she's talking about slavery. Mm -hmm. And that section is in this like diminished, crunchy thing. <sighs> and then the, uh, then she like resolves that, gets to this place that's called, that she, where she says, history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived, but if faced with courage, need not be lived again. And that resolves into a major. So she's using tonal language. She's using diminished to create tension and major to release it within, both within the cycles inside of each line and also on a bigger scale like the the last piece she's talking about hope the last minute 30 seconds uh, 45 ish she's talking about hope and that whole section is major it because i'm educated in the western tradition i'm looking at it with western tonality yeah that's just because like that's how my brain functions that doesn't mean that the way she was thinking about it is exactly the same i know she's a trained vocalist as well she's saying so her voice is trained and she has tonal knowledge in her body, which makes sense. But there's no way she's thinking about it with music theory. It's just like, she's expressing, these are the sounds that express tension. These are the sounds that express release and she's matching it thematically. Because also the poem is brilliant. It has these thematic things that come back over the course of five and a half minutes and the tonal language comes back whenever she does whenever she has motivic development in the language, 
She's using musical motivic development to support that when she reads it. Currents of day free upon my breast. Yet today I call you to my riverside. If you will study war no more. Come, clad in peace, and I will sing the songs the Creator gave to me when I and the tree and the rock were one. Before cynicism was a bloody seer across your brow, and when you yet knew, you still knew nothing. The river sang and sings on. There is a true yearning to respond to the singing river and the wise rock. So say the Asian, the Hispanic, the Jew, the African, the Native American, the Sioux, the Catholic, the Muslim, the French, the Greek, the Irish, the rabbi, the priest, the sheikh, the gay, the straight, the preacher, the privileged, the homeless, the teacher, they all hear the speaking of the tree. amazing the summer 2020 mm-hmm. that was the start of the bad times when you know we were all stuck we may have been released a bit actually during the summer but yeah this did, was did, did this was see... in new york it was blm protests so it oh, was everyone on the oh, streets gotcha. things getting yeah. yeah that's what was happening in new york at the time so when you heard that how did that open up or how did that affect your improvisation because when you hear a poet mm-hmm. that is speaking words that she's written that she's composed as you say Mm -hmm. purposely using her voice but how she creates that that sort of that release or from the net from the minor to the to the major as an uplift Mm -hmm. not shying away from historical fact but also yeah. not not staying within that confines of historical facts, saying mm-hmm. today is today, tomorrow is tomorrow. Yeah. When you improvise, when you then start go back to improvisation, having having sort of broken down that that performance of hers, how does that affect how you react with each note and more importantly with the silence within the notes i know you like silence you're not a, you're not a showy offy showy offy play 500 miles an hour you can do that and i've heard you do that but you don't i, I will to do, do that when the music calls for it but i never serve the music yeah but you don't choose to do it you like silence and obviously yes. you get silence in poetry as well so how did that one thing affect you when you started them playing um well, I, I mean, I'm, I've said many times and I will keep saying it, that like I've learned more about jazz phrasing and jazz language transcribing Maya Angelou than from anything else I've done. I've never heard that. And that is, that is just amazing to. Because, because of like, people talk about tradition when it comes to music. They talk about tradition a lot when it comes to jazz. And the way that that's been morphed in jazz education is like, well, the tradition means you learn this set of 150 tunes. Everyone has to know <laughs> yep. these 150 tunes. Yep. And you have to know how to do on all of them, which is like a Coltrane lick that is called the lick, um, which everyone knows. And then you have to learn all your two five licks. So you have to like learn all these predetermined. That is a very, very, very Western European way to think about music. Here is our repertoire. Here are the things you have to know. If you know these things, you're a jazz player. Check mark, you're good. But that's not music to me. That's that's playing uh, by rote. 
yeah, that's, that's like, if we come back to the shamanistic idea, like that's, that's not where that goes. It go that's showing what you know, rather than serving the music. That's interesting. Showing what you know to an audience rather than mm -hmm. opening up your soul. Yeah. Because and it's easier. Oh, it's easier. And also it it's would, so much easier. And it elicit elicit a different reaction from the from the audience, wouldn't it? Right. And that's I I should I should make sure to say that I, I'm not saying that that's not valid. That like playing things perfectly, being able to check the boxes and say that like I I am legit in this tradition. I know my I know my history. I know where I'm coming from. Absolutely valid. Now what? <laughs> um, that's Elsa. Now what? On everything, isn't it? Yeah, and like that's my artistic identity. That doesn't mean that I think everyone has to think like me. That would be really boring. Like yeah. If everyone, <laughs> your facial expression right now is priceless. <laughs> <but> <laughs> You know what I mean, though, that like different perspectives is what makes life exciting, that we get to have conversations and learn from each other. Yeah, I remember you once, oh, many years ago, you weren't saying that um, it's like being on a boat in a big ocean. You know, you, you never stand still, you move on. And you yeah. may end up going in a totally different direction, but what you will learn from going in that different direction will be new and freeing. Yeah. And if you if you decide that the direction you want to go is I want to be I want to go as deep as I can into this one area of music and this one area of concept, then that's what you do. Like, that doesn't mean that other things aren't true or relevant. No. And looking, well, listening to all of your albums, there is no one direction that you can pinpoint. This is where Elsa is. And the, the next album follows on from that because you are, you're very much the of that is, moment. There is, there is to me. Oh, really? There is like, yeah, who I am, like the, the essence of who, this particular set of atoms that is organized in this particular way that's in all of them and that might be the only through line but the fact that it's all coming from the same i don't know spiritual coordinates is and that a term we can use here and how has that changed <laughs> as, as you've got older and i wouldn't say wiser because it sounds like you're a wise six-year-old but how how has that morphed itself had, into freedom I've had more time to figure out what that looks like for me to like get to know myself better and to, to learn more about my instrument, to learn more about my relationship to my instrument, to, to learn what I need to show up and to actually give myself learn about boundaries. Like what, what is appropriate for me to give? What do I need to keep to myself? What do I need to hold on to in order to have myself be sustained enough that I can give honestly? And that is such a hard process to do because oh gosh, that we, yeah. we've all got we've all got stuff, and we can hide behind stuff. But mm -hmm. if you're an improv improviser, you that stuff will hold you back, and you still be you wouldn't be have the freedom that you would yeah. say. So, how do you address? stuff, or don't you address it? Do you, <laughs> do you just I... become okay? with stuff stuff is part of being alive that's part of it like it's not i'm not saying you ignore it because then it builds up and explodes and it yeah. can be really unhealthy but i think actually i'm gonna i'm gonna bring it back to the make sure it's yourself your give quote and where that was going because that yeah. was a different thread um we'll come back to maya it'll happen 
<laughs> so I studied with this, this vibes player. He passed away in April. Um, his name was Carl Berger and he lived in Woodstock and I studied with him for a couple of years, very frequently. Can I ask why you studied with a vibes player? I've never studied with flute players until the last like, five years. Because <laughs> like flute is it's just it's just my instrument. Like I just need to figure out how the fingers work, but music, that's what I want. What Carl teaches is kind of a mix of philosophy and action. And he's got this like razor clarity in terms of talking about these ideas. So when I would go into a lesson with him, I'd always come with a question because that's how he likes to teach. He likes, he liked you to come in, be like, this is what I'm curious about. And then he would, like, our lessons were usually two hours. We would talk for a half an hour, play for an hour, improvise, and then talk for another half an hour. And then I would go home and spend six months taking notes from that one two-hour session because it's just like everything was so dense. Um, but one thing he kept talking about is I would come in and I'd be like, this is what I'm, this is what I'm struggling with right now. And he'd be like, well, that sounds like a question for your therapist, not for me. And then he would look at me for like a minute and then he would laugh and then he would answer my freaking question. <laughs> <laughs> and my most, the most intense one for me was I, I wrote this piece that's called yesterday's promise. That is, um, it's two perspectives that never actually align. And the way I represented that was rhythmically. It's the whole thing is a cross rhythm. The baseline is dotted quarter notes, which can be expressed as like, that's a different pulse than the melody, which is quarter notes. And then the drummer can choose to either accentuate the pulse of the melody or the pulse of the baseline or something else. Like there's five or six different versions of how to experience the pulse within that framework. So my band, when we practice that, is like, okay, well, let's try all of them. And that way, when we're on stage, we can do any of them. And that idea came from, I brought it to Carl, and I had just played two of the parts, and he, and he was like, it sounds academic. I'm like, okay, no, it makes sense. This was an exercise from one of my classes that I wrote. And I was like, can I play it again? Because it's like, I get that it's academic. It's an academic concept. But now what? How do I turn this into art? So I played it again and he looks at me and he goes, you sound angry. Like, yeah, I'm pissed. I'm so mad. Like there's so much going on, but like, yeah, I'm freaking pissed. And he goes, I get that. That doesn't belong here. That's you. That's not the music. What you need to do when you're playing is you need to find the balancing point where everything is possible. As in, you don't succumb entirely to any one emotion. You sit on the point where you could feel any other emotion at any point, and then you feel everything, and that's where you need to play. It's the same spot as when you're breathing. There's that moment between the in-breath and the out-breath where there's nothing. Mm -hmm. that, that is where you play from. It's called the gap in meditation, isn't it? Yeah. So if you're thinking, you're lost. But it's that like that balancing point. And it doesn't mean you don't feel. It doesn't mean you're not present in your emotion. It means you don't get lost in your emotion. And those are very, it's a fine distinction, but it's very important. And that is also work that we do as artists to discover who we are. Where do I get lost? And why am I getting lost? And who am I in the moment before I get lost? And how do I hold on to that? How do I 
balance that. And it's, it's balance, not tension. Like you're not trying to clutch or avoid because that creates, that creates a block. Like you said, that creates the barrier that your energy doesn't move because you're like, I'm not going to look at that over there. And for me, you said activism, you ready? Oh, I'm always ready when you are on activism because okay. that's an important part of that is an important part of who Elsa is. You're an academic, you're a performer, you're a composer, you're an activist, and you're not one to to sit back. And as you say, it's not nothing's ever about you, and that is so unusual as a musician because is it? Well, I think so because there's <laughs> you mentioned about it's not about you. There's you know the ego yeah. is parked. Because when you're playing with your band, you may be fronting it, but it's about the whole and the sum of the whole is greater than the parts. Yes. If I could set up between the bass and the drums, that's where I would want to be on a bandstand. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That would feel so good. <laughs> Stages just aren't set up that way. So, like, I have to stand yeah. in front and I would rather not. Yeah. We're in a profession where... Ego dominates. It's about us and what we're doing and how we portray ourselves to the audience and what we say and how we do it. Yeah. And, and, and our comments, however we like something, suddenly become valid on social media or invalidated. And yeah. the ego can be that dented or inflated. True, What's that wasn't always true, though. Like that, that hasn't always been what the role of musicians has been. I just read another book. I'm kind of in a history phase. The Subversive History of Music by Ted Golia. Right. Well, just that one word, subversive, that's Elsa to start with. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's, if it's just the history of music, I'm probably not going to read it. (laughs) Um, But this book was fascinating because it was talking about uh, subcultures and how mainstream culture incorporates subculture and how it's been doing it Mm -hmm. forever. So it actually starts in Greek antiquity and talks about subcultures in that context and how they get like Pythagoras being the first to like come up with a system of tuning, which now we're like obsessed with being in tune or not, which is another thing Carl said to me when I brought him the Maya piece, he was like, you need to relax. You need to relax your sense of pitch. Cause you're trying to force her. Like you're trying to play along with her in tune and she's speaking. It's not in tune. So you got to relax your sense of pitch, which when you're improvising, if you're communicating it's like you're saying like the it's not that it's imperfect it's that it's wider and if you listen to someone like eric dolphy you could be like oh man everything he plays is out of tune or you can be like oh wow he's really expressive with his pitch mm-hmm. both are true but how how advanced is your ear how deeply can you listen yeah and what inner biases do we have with our listening ear right which Yeah, that comes back to activism because you're talking about like your implicit bias. If you listen to something, you're like, this doesn't sound good, but millions of people love it. Then maybe that is your internal ear. Maybe that is your training that's telling you that another culture's music is air quotes bad because it doesn't fit into your idea of what good music is. Well, good is subjective. Always. Yeah. Everything like there's nothing is as simple as we try to make it. And the reason we try to make it simple is so that we don't have to be vulnerable. The reason we try to be like, this is right, that's wrong, is so that we don't have to be vulnerable. But don't you think, certainly nowadays with social media and the web being an immediate 
there's an immediate voice out there that we're in danger of overcomplicating everything. Yeah, of course. And music then becomes overcomplicated. Which makes it that much more important to be clear about what, about making sure it's ourself we give. Yeah, you keep coming back to this, doesn't it? And it's... That's my, I mean, I love thematic development. And I think that that is, that is the thing that we've lost a little bit in the social media world because we're always trying to think of the new thing, the next thing, like the next thing that's going to create a splash or go viral. And true creativity is not how many different things can you think of. It's how creative can you be with one idea? Yeah. And how many different things can you say with these three notes? Like that's the brilliance of Bach. That's the brilliance of Beethoven. And spontaneity. Spontaneity yeah. trumps all, really, doesn't it? Because it's that genius spark in that moment, never to be repeated. Yeah. Genius is another fun word. My husband just told me a quote that I thought was really funny about it. He said, um, talent is hitting the target no one else can hit. Genius is hitting the target no one else can see. <laughs> yeah, Cody, Cody hit, that was kind of funny. Well, Cody hits a target all the time. The, the guy's such he's, a, he's, he's such an amazing percussionist. Yeah, he's a good he's a good human. I, oh, he is. I just couldn't imagine being married to someone that is such a good technical percussionist, having to, you know working out. And your love is rhythm, and you having yeah. this genius of a a rhythmic person as your husband. I mean, gosh, I just have to keep up. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's part of why I went so deep into rhythm. Is like, oh, okay, I got to keep up here. Yeah, and yeah, we won't explore too much on rhythm, but. You have this love of rhythm that conflicts with, well, more as you've already touched on it, when you've got more than one rhythmic passage going against each other mm -hmm. that creates this sort of um, this issue, this sort of audible issue that yeah. you, you're, you're listening to because it doesn't sound right. And then when you resolve it, suddenly it's all blah. Yeah. And you're explaining it's it. It's tension and release. Yeah, that's the word, tension and release. And yeah. it's I didn't get you told me you told you're speaking about this on the last podcast about tension and release and the importance of it because yeah. in any performance, unless you have tension and release, it then becomes very static, a very non-fluid gunge mm -hmm. because you're not raising emotion, are you? Yeah. Well, it's if you have all release, then there's nothing to draw you in. If you have all tension, then it's exhausting. Oh, I'm all release, my dear. It's all. <laughs> it's like that, or everyone's tensed and think, "Oh God, he's going to shut up soon." <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> so, tell me about your bands. You got you are you got the, some wonderful stuff going on at the moment. I've got a couple of projects. Um, the band of pulses. That's the one that's yep. playing the Angelou piece, which is the piece is called Pulses. Band of Pulses is a Jimi Hendrix reference. Band of Gypsies. <laughs> I had to. You did. I had to. It's uh, Rodrigo Recabaran on drums, who I've been working with for five years now. Santiago Leibson is, he's absolutely brilliant piano player, um, plays most nights somewhere in New York, is very, he's on the avant-garde tip, but classically trained, wild, wild piano player. Like he's incredible. And Marty Kenny on bass, who I've known for 13 years, we went to grad school at the same time, but not at the same school. So Rodrigo and this bass player named Bam Bam Rodriguez, we started working on the Maya piece and then Bam moved to France. So Rodrigo and I were like, well, we want to keep working on this piece. 
who should we call? And I had this, the thing that happens in New York a lot is these things called sessions. Mm -hmm. What we do is we just like call people, get together, play, just bring, everyone brings tunes, everyone brings whatever they're working on and we try it out together. And I do like, I try to do at least one a week, sometimes two or three a week. And it's just like two hours in the middle of the day, go to someone's house, play for a couple hours, move on. So I just done one of these with Marty and Santi. And I was thinking about it and I was like, this, um, it felt really good. And so I write Reka, I write Rodrigo. And I'm like, what do you think of Marty and Santi? And he takes a photo and sends it to me. He's in a room with the two of them doing a session. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's the band. And what we've done with Maya, like they they play my tunes too. We play Santi's tunes sometimes. It's borderline free, but not entirely free. So I like to think of it as it's structured free improvisation, which our structure in Pulses in the Maya piece is Maya. So I wrote down all of her pitches, all of her everything, and I took her voice, I notated it as close as I could with Western notation, and then we spent six months playing it over and over and memorizing her inflections, memorizing everything about how she speaks and then in between like the her poem is five and a half minutes the piece is 45 minutes but there's nothing written there's one thing written other than what she says so everything in between is like these landing pads so we're going to take what she said we're going to take the pitches from what she did and we're going to build something and then we're going to land at the next spot where she is so we have like a general shape of what's going to happen and it never happens the same twice and that's what we're playing at the, the Mid-Atlantic Flute Convention. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it'll be great. How long's the slot? <laughs> Have they reduced your slot or? No. Gosh. No, they gave, they're, they're having me do the cabaret slot. So oh, we're doing wow. a, couple of my, uh, a couple of my originals and then we're going to play pulses. But the thing that's amazing about doing that with these, with these people is a lot of time in the jazz world, like, you can't, honestly, you can't afford to have a consistent working band. You call who's available. And because this piece is so like, it's, it's classical in the way that it's, it requires a lot from the musicians. It's not just like, you can't just sight read it. It's not possible because it's not possible to notate it. So how could you possibly sight read it? So I'm not going to play this piece unless it's with these musicians because of the commitment they've shown to the music. Like, again, like, it's about the music. You show up for the music. But with such a piece, you need to give a verbal narrative before to bring everybody into the concept, surely. No. Really? <laughs> no. Oh, well, this is typical Elsa, you know, trying to take people on the journey. I know you like people to sort of... If I'm, if I'm using this piece to explore the links between music and communication... Mm-hmm then I'm not doing my job unless it does that, unless I'm communicating something and it's abstract. Of course it's abstract. It's avant-garde. It's like free jazz. Of course it's abstract, but that doesn't mean that it can't be clear. So that's kind of like, that's the balancing point. Again, that's what Carl was talking about. Like the thing of, I want the artistic freedom to have it be able to go everywhere. But the thing that holds it together is that it has to communicate. And Maya's words and the fact that her voice is part of the piece, like I'm triggering her. And then I have this video, which doesn't always happen in the venues, but 
with the words written. Uh, so the audience gets the words. Ah, uh, got you, got you, got you. Which gets like that does that does connect it. But then you also have the visual aspect by Sigmund Washington, who's an incredible artist who did this whole thing with um, stop motion animation with paper. Spectacular. And I haven't put any of that online yet. I should do that sometime. It's, it's just that when I've been to free jazz, I mean, the, mm-hmm. the intellectual level is much higher than I can, I can process because I don't know what's going on sitting there. And yeah. with genuine free jazz, I mean, someone can get off, go off stage, have a coffee or a beer, come back on and then just carry on. And then there's this sort of process and sometimes it is so discordant, but there's this process that so is just far higher than I can conceptualise. But there's people that I've been with that totally mm-hmm. get it. Yeah. And I yeah. just wonder, something like Mid-Atlantic, I suppose now you said they put the words up, there is, mm-hmm. there is this hook, isn't there? There is a hook, but there's also the thing of, like, the fact that it doesn't have to be the same every time means that I can read the room. We're, we're back yeah. to, like, what the bio says. Like, that's something I enjoy doing, and it doesn't mean that I'm going to change the piece to fit the audience because that to me feels like disrespecting the audience that's saying like well i have look at these people aren't going to understand this that's nonsense if the audience makes sure it's themselves they give they'll be with me i have to trust that now i have to do the same like we both have to show up and when i say show up i mean bring everything you got which is another maya angelou thing like when you come, when you're in a space, you, not only you are in the space, everyone who loved you into being is in that space. When you're playing music, that's true. When you show up at an interview and you're nervous, that's true. Like you're never actually alone and things aren't ever actually silent. There's always meaning somehow. Yeah, you, you said, I think it was in San Diego so many years ago. We were having coffee and you were saying that, Silence, there's so much meaning in silence. And I was, I was sitting there going, what? <laughs> and you were saying, yeah, silence in, in between words says more than the word itself. Silence when you're looking at a person or you're looking at an audience says a lot. Jeez, I'm exhausting to be around. <laughs> you are. <laughs> you I are. know. <laughs> so one question I would like to ask, ask you, yeah. Elsa, is... As a female, you can't you can't categorise because you're a brilliant classical player as well. But as a female flute player that doesn't necessarily conform to how we all know, mm-hmm. flutists, Do anything, flutists, flautists, flute players, or, or side, yeah. sideways blowing tubeists. How has how has sort of the profession being a female in a if we're looking at jazz, for example, largely a, yeah. has been dominated yeah. by guys. What's it like being a, a woman in this world? Oh, man, that's a very big question, and I can only speak from my own experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think um, that a big part of that is why I'm so focused on just showing up to serve the music is because that's the only thing I know to be true. It's, really, it's been really hard for me to tell at certain points in my career if people want to play with me because I'm a good musician or because of how I look. Mm. 
it's also like there's a there's an issue of safety. I was talking about the sessions. Like I am going to strangers' houses multiple times a week, and it's pretty much always me and a bunch of dudes. Often me and a bunch of dudes I don't know. And that it's never been a problem, but it is something I think about. And it's something like it's an extra weight that I carry that I have to think about like safety. I have to think about these things. Um, and then also somehow everybody feels like they have a right to tell me who I should be or what I should do or how I should change my music. Yeah. Like after, after every performance, there's invariably someone who comes up to me, um, usually men and are like, you know, you're really great, but you should really do this instead. I'm like, well, if I wanted to do that, I would be doing that, but okay. I guess like my favorite is when people come up and it's like, with your technique, it's really a shame that you don't play shoro. I'm like, but I don't want to play shoro. Like, who are you to say who I am artistically? But that's like, that's a constant thing that I've had to, like, I've, I've had to fight my whole career. Um, Is it getting easier? I see it clearer. I spend less time thinking about okay, it. Okay, got you. Um, I'm, it's getting easier to let go of it. And, but that's partially because I have, I have people supporting the other side being like, yeah, I don't listen to them. Um, but for a long time I didn't. And it was just like, well, maybe I'm doing everything wrong, which is part of like, it's both negative and positive. Cause on the one hand, I am very versatile. And the reason I'm so versatile is because so many people told me I should be doing something else. And I was like, oh, sh- maybe I should. So I practiced it. And then I practiced it enough to be able to do it. And then was like, this isn't actually interesting to me. So I let it go. But I know enough about a lot of different things. And that's like why I can teach this rhythmic analysis class that covers a lot of South American traditions, a lot of West African traditions, a lot of Central American traditions and uh, like music from everywhere is because I'm good at learning things quickly because I've been told by so many people, you should learn this. And then I tried. And then the real, the real art is imparting that knowledge in a way that others that have grown up in this very Western one dimensional way to understand that Mm -hmm. what we are enjoying and listening and our biases today are underpinned by this beautiful stuff that's gone back thousands and thousands of years. You can't listen to any music anywhere and get away from Africa. You can also not listen to any music anywhere and get away from Europe. Like it's all cross modulated at this point. You can't, um, unless you're listening to like Smithsonian field recordings. But if you're listening to pop music from South Africa, you're getting both Africa and Europe because of colonialism. You can't like, you can't separate them. And that's where the beauty of it all is because like you cannot separate the humanity. And how and everyone involved. How's your student are your students really open to understanding and digging down into um either they are or they stop coming to class on week six. <laughs> <laughs> there's so much there's so much complexity in music yeah. outside the Western tradition, isn't there? So much beauty and yes, real Yeah. But there's so much complexity in the music of the Western tradition too. It's just where is the complexity and like what we understand is one thing. And like, I've talked to people who came up in other traditions where they're like, yeah, we have this rhythmic thing that is super like, complex and involved, but the harmonic thing, the way that you talk about harmony in Western classical music is this whole other thing. 
So the way to look at it to me is like, we all have something to learn from everything. Yeah. There's always something, there's always some truth. And this comes back to your question about gender. If someone comes to me and says, you should be doing this other thing instead, there's some truth in that. Now, my job is to sift out what the truth is. Sometimes the truth is they are uncomfortable with me being the person that I am. And A, that's not my problem. But B, the thing that makes them uncomfortable, that's something I can learn. And either that is something that is a strength for me or that is something that maybe is getting in my way of communicating. Either way, if I just shut it off, if I just like dismiss them, that is me proving them right. That is me giving them what they want, giving them ammunition to keep thinking that whatever, like whatever they're thinking. But if I, if I listen to them and give them the acknowledgement of their humanity, my hope is that the next person they want to say something like that to or do something like that to, they'll think twice because I showed them my humanity. I showed them their humanity in doing so. And hopefully that made me more of a person and less of just boobs. And that is a lesson for every female. In fact, actually, every musician out there. Every person. It's yeah, like... It is. I, I've always been really, really intense about the idea, like, I don't want my gender to be the thing people talk about about my artistry. And that's why I think there's one record that I'm on the cover of. I've released over 10 records at this point. Hindsight. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, can, um, I can see the inside, but I can't see the Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the, the cover okay. photo is me sideways uh, split in four. Okay. But it's because, like, I want the artistry to speak louder and I want the music to speak louder. Like, it comes back to that thing of, if you want to know who I am as a person, it's all in there. But my gender is only part of it. It's not not relevant, but it's only part of it. And I don't want that to be highlighted. Um, there's, there's one more project that I wanted to touch on just cause yeah, I've been involved with it a little bit. Hello everybody. My name is Keith Lamar and I'm joined here in collaboration with a group of amazing musicians out of New York City. Coming here under the banner of Freedom First, led by the incomparable I Bear My Cast. We're here to share with you the strength and beauty of what it means to be part of a movement, part of a campaign that has been made true to its cause. We stand for truth and justice for all. This isn't just about me. You see, on May the 25th, this project is um, the first record in history done by. Um, a man on death row and he's collaborating with this pianist who lives in Brooklyn his name is Albert Marquez and the the guy in Ohio his name is Keith Lamar he's been in solitary confinement for 30 years I've been I've been following your feed yeah yeah um and I went to visit him like three weeks ago so I spent a weekend in a supermax prison in Ohio I, I mean, I didn't spend the night. I yeah. went and visited five hours, two days, and two and a half hours the third day. Can I ask a couple of questions here? Were you f- please? Were you behind glass or 
Um, two of the days were semi-contact. So yeah, right. behind glass, but there was like a little hole. Um, so we could, we could like yeah. touch through the hole. We could hold hands and whatever. Sure. Um, and then the third day was full contact. Oh, well. So we were sitting out in like this big room. At one point there were like 10 COs in there, corrections officers. And, you know, I'm sitting there with my friend, like Keith at this point is a, is a dear friend. And we're talking about art and poetry and music. And then like, he's telling me about his life and his experiences. And he's like asking me questions about mine. And we're like, it's like hanging out with any friend, mm-hmm. except he's chained to the floor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, I've never laughed so hard in my life. Like, he's so funny. But this record, there hasn't, like he has new lawyers now because of this album. And there's legal hope in his case for the first time in 20 years because of a relatively avant-garde jazz record. And that's one of those things that I like, I want to bring it up as a, first of all, go check it out. It's called Freedom First. It's on Spotify. If you want to read Keith's book, uh, it's called Condemned. It has all the details of his case. Um, Rather than me talking about it, it's better to get it directly from him. It's the way that he expresses himself has such deep artistry and it's like the thing that we're talking about of like make sure it's yourself you give that's who I heard that phrase from the first time was Keith and that's how he signs emails be intentional and make sure it's yourself you give and from this one album there is some hope that's being generated out from this one album his life has been completely changed. Like he, um, his date was supposed to be, his execution date was supposed to be November 16th, 2023. So just recently, mm-hmm. um, he's got a reprieve and he's got new lawyers. So reprieve means that the date has been changed till January, 2027. And the new lawyers said that they need two years to go through his entire case in order to be able to ask for a retrial to prove that he didn't get a fair, a fair trial mm-hmm. in the first place. But it's like, we, we so often think as artists that what we do is self-indulgent. They're like, we're just doing this because we love it. And that's not not true. But the importance of what we do goes far beyond the fact that we love it. And how intentional we are about the work we do, how intentional we are about the ways that we show up. It doesn't mean that you have to make activist art. It doesn't mean that you have to if you're if you're creating something, you're counterbalancing the brutality. That's that's one of the Maya Angelou thing, and also a thing I've talked to Keith about a lot is the balance between beauty and brutality. That being alive is both, and you can't experience one without the other. You can't only have the beauty in your life, because there's only two things that are guaranteed: we're all born and we all die. Like those, mm. you can't you can't not say that fact. And. Like the beauty and the brutality of every moment of being alive is expressed if you find that balancing point. And that like going to visit Keith, sitting with him in a maximum security prison, like I've never been to a prison before. And I, I walk in and the CO like takes me aside and checks my paperwork because I look very different in my ID than I do in person. And then he tells me, like I, I went alone and he looks at me and he goes, make sure you keep your clothes on. I'm like, what? Yeah, make sure you keep your clothes on. You don't like, the other day a grandma took all her clothes off in here because an inmate got paid a lot of money to like get her to do that. I'm like, you don't know me. 
you don't know anything about me. And you're like, first thing is keep your clothes on me, girl. And I told Keith and he got real mad, Mm. but he didn't like, he showed me in those three days, the clearest, the clearest expression I've seen of finding that balancing point because of his life experience, because of what he's been through, he's seen the depths of the brutality of what humans are capable of. But he's also so good at holding on to the beauty. And he flips, like he can, he finds all of it in everything. Which is like, I encourage you to find it, like go, go listen to his words, go listen to the album. Can you repeat the how people find it's it? It's called Freedom First. Um, there's a website, it's freedomfirstmusic.com. There is um, justiceforkeithlamar.com has all the information as well. Um, the record is on Spotify for, uh, under Freedom First. The artists are Keith Lamar and Nalbert Marquez. Um, and they play, they play concerts all over the world. And Keith calls in from his cell. So they have to like schedule the concerts for when his call times are. Um, but they just like not that long ago, they played the French embassy in, in DC. Uh, they played in Spain. They're playing in Spain and France in the spring. Um, yeah. And like the, what it means to be an artist is something that I think that everyone who creates anything, even if it's not on a professional level, it's still an interesting question because the impact it has on you and the impact it has on your circle, no matter how big or small your circle is, it's important. It's the thing that, that codifies and embellishes humanity. Wow. What a, Gosh, uh, I think when I do the promotional stuff for this podcast, I'm going to have to do the back five minutes. (laughs) It's just, there is something, you're talking about creating music with a guy on death row who, with most of us, can can only see ourselves in that position as being such a hugely negative place to be both physically mentally and emotionally and yet Mm -hmm. this guy can create music this guy can create artistry this guy can flip between seeing something that is inherently negative as we would see it but yet see the beauty in it and from musical context it is well it's completely unique isn't it because this guy is actually created it yeah it is, it is completely unique. And one of the things that I want to point out is that like the work that he has done on himself is what allows him to express his humanity, his sense of agency that yeah. he has developed over time. Um, those are all choices that he made. He didn't have to make that choice and they're hard choices and the context he's in makes them harder. Yeah. Um, but there is... Like there are conversations I've had with him where he will say things that like, you know, when I started, when I started becoming friends with him, it was through the class I teach, 
where I had my students write him questions. He answered them in two days and the answers were just like spectacular. So I wrote him a letter to thank him for the answers. And then we've been exchanging letters. And this was in like March last year. One of the things that keeps coming up is that like I withhold if I'm struggling. I'm like, he doesn't wanna hear about this. He does, he does. Like he's, he doesn't want to be treated he's a person, like he's a friend. What that means is everything that means everywhere else. And he's, he's like half scolded me a couple of times for being like, I'm having a hard day, but it's fine. Like, I don't want to like, I don't want to bother you with that. And he's like, no, that's not the point. Like if we're friends, then we're friends. And there's a lot of energy that passes between humans. Don't let my circumstance define me. And we've had a complete circle. We're back to energy again, aren't we? And in the context, we started. See, I like thematic development. Yeah. I really like thematic development. Well, it, it, <laughs> that's the thing. I'm, I've learned something here is that I let somebody else take us on the journey and we end up where we back, back where we started. But interestingly, yeah. if you had said we're going to end up with speaking about this guy on death row, but it's going to be in a positive context, I mm-hmm. would never, I would not have known how that was going to play out. Yeah. So, gosh, you are always, you're full of surprises, as always, Elsa. I hope that's a good thing. (laughs) It's always a good thing because you're not a product that other people want want you to be in. You don't have a mould. I take pride in that, so thank you. I also encourage that in my students. But it's probably the biggest thing that you can give to them is the sense of identity, as you've already elicited. The knowledge that their identity is relevant. I think that's an important thing to, to say, is that like one of the things that happens when you get pushed into a tradition mm-hmm. is that your identity becomes secondary to expressing the tradition. And any of the people that we look up to as artists, as composers... Like, how did they live their lives? Who, who were they as people? Did they stay in a tradition? Like, what tradition do you want to be part of? Do you want to be part of the tradition that upholds another tradition? Or do you want to be part of the tradition that brings it, moves it forward? Because it's both, like, you cannot remove the fact that we exist on a timeline. You can't take away the fact that you're alive for a certain span of time and you're alive at the same time as other people. And... In your lifetime, you get to make all of these choices. And those choices define who you are and how you see yourself and how you relate to the world and how the world keeps moving. Be intentional because there's beauty in every choice you make. I started with the the comment is music medicine. Perhaps looking at a title of this podcast, which is a super long podcast, which always is with you. it, It is because it's fascinating. And you take me and hopefully the listeners on this journey that is a very philosophical journey. And yet it's been borne out by your experiences. Also, you're very open about biases that you've broken down and come to understand your biases over the years and that how that's benefited you as a musician and how then that's just unlocked the you to be able to perform improv. And improv will always be, to the day that I go into the furnace, that'll be something that scares the hell out of me because it's just, you know, I'm not willing to let go. And it's just my own issues. And a lot of us listening to this will have our own 
our own things, our own bits. But yeah. if we could take one bit about away from what you've been talking about, just releasing a little bit of yourself, understanding, begin to understand who you are, understand that you are the sum of all your bits, however strong, however negative, however positive, and just understand that, that should then free you up just that little bit to be more comfortable with improv. I hope so. Wonderful to speak to you. As always, what I'm challenging Send you all now. Way. Yeah, what I'm challenging you guys to now is to come up with some philosophical questions that you want answering by the sage that is Elsa Nilsson. <laughs> here's, here's what I'll do. Let me know when the podcast airs. Yeah. I'll put an Ask Me Anything on my Instagram. Got you. If you want to send the questions directly to me, it'll be there. Got you. Um, I'm actually going through, as I'm speaking, I'm going through the... The, <laughs> the schedule. The schedule. Gosh, um, yeah. But then, then, we can, then we can keep this conversation open because I think this is a very important conversation to have in the world that we're in. Like, for, for all of you listeners, I think that this is, like I said, like, this is not just a question for professional musicians. This is part of being a human and part of being a listener. Like we need, we need to show up for each other and we need to explore what that means. That's a podcast in itself. Cause again, I have, <laughs> I have my own views from my own background on the importance yeah. of showing up for everybody, the importance of humility, the importance of gratitude, the importance of patience, the importance of understanding that everybody has their viewpoint and everybody is Mm -hmm. to understand somebody's viewpoint before you then try to debunk it. And by debunking something, what you then try to do, you're then trying to force your own views and values on somebody else rather than understand. Yeah. I'm full of, uh, uh, we could have a nice one on that. Oh yeah. So I'll see you all at mid Atlantic flute convention. Are you sure? It's the second biggest outside (laughs) of NFA, isn't it? Yep. And I've never been before. So I'm very excited to be there and to get to present. You should come meet the band. Meet the band, does the boys yeah. are here, the boys to entertain you. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. <laughs> something, something will happen. There is always something that happens when Elsa's around. Always something. <laughs> there is never a dull moment. Elsa, yeah. how wonderful as always. We will catch up very soon. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. That's uh, my pleasure. And may your high Bs be especially in tune because mine never are. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you got to relax your sense of tuning. you got to relax. Oh, yes. I've, that's one thing I've learned today. Thank you, Maya. And thank, and thank you all for listening this week to Talking Flutes Extra. May your week ahead be musically fulfilling. And instead of your top B, I'm going to challenge you to put your, top, your bottom C in tune because mine is especially flat, as always. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Elsa. Bye, everybody. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.